we are now at chapter three. We are at what I called last week the darkest chapter in all of scripture, in my opinion, in terms of personal sorrow and lament. This is as tough as it gets. And Job has had a lot of time to think. A lot has happened since the exchange he had with his wife. We said last week that, remember, it took weeks, if not months, for his friends to come and, and get to him. Um, they had to communicate with each other about their plan. Then they had to travel. Then there's seven days of sitting in silence. All the while, Job is sitting on a pile of trash, scraping off his boils and scabs with a piece of broken pottery. In chapter 7, he refers back to this time as being months of emptiness. He's had a lot of time to think. And in the absence of good comfort, remember last week we talked about comfort begins with sympathy and understanding a person's feelings, but comfort always speaks. Comfort includes words. And in the absence of comfort, nearly always perception and thinking will head in the wrong direction. We're not doing people a favor when we fail to comfort them. They're holding on by a thread, so to speak. They're, they're grasping at straws, and we're not giving them anything to hold on to. His friends met him with silence. And so it's Job who finally speaks and breaks that silence with a, a cry from his heart, an expression of unbearable anguish. And he's talking to himself. He's, he's not really talking to his friends, even though they're there. He's not really talking to God, even though God is the sort of second level addressee here. He's really talking to himself. He's not convinced that anybody else is listening. It doesn't seem like his friends have anything to offer him. It doesn't seem like God is particularly pleased with him. Satan attacked his stuff, including his family, not just uh, not just stuff, stuff, but people, relationships that he loves. And Satan attacked him, his flesh, with this illness. And now Satan attacks his heart. And out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's how I can tell Satan attacks his heart. The things Job says, it's not that they're wrong. But it's that they are such hopeless pain that Satan is thrilled with what he hears here, with where he thinks this is headed. However, don't take that too far. Some people already jump on the anti-Job bandwagon in chapter 3, that Job does something wrong here, that Job sins here. That I'm not convinced. Um, Remember, the, the challenge that Job just received from Satan through his wife was to curse God and die. The, the wager, to use an uncareful term, between God and Satan is that Job will utterly turn his back on God, denounce God, curse God, and die. Job doesn't do that here. Job, for all that he says, does not curse God. He curses his own life. He, he wishes that he, if a life were going to be this bad, that the life had never been, but he does not curse God. The other place we have to be careful in chapter 3 is there's a real temptation to make Job a very simple book. Job suffered, but ultimately persevered through all of that suffering by the power of God. You should too. That's really good. Um, I think to make that summary of Job is to have failed to read chapter 3. I think chapter 3 introduces a lot of complexity that sets up the next 30-something chapters. Uh, you can't ignore the fact that Job here, though he does not curse God, curses the day of his birth and then spends dozens of chapters lamenting and protesting everything that has happened against him. It's not as straightforward as Job 
got what he deserved because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not as simple and straightforward as Job suffered and persevered in faith, and you should too. It's actually more careful. And yet, <laughs> this is why Job is complicated. As we read chapter 3, we can't forget how many times the narrator and God are telling us that Job is not just a great man. He is a good man. He is a godly man. Who's got one eight? I do. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And two, three. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Job 42, 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Right? The, Job is not a theological, Job the person, is not a theological problem. God, through the author, through the narrator, affirms to us again and again, Job is on the right side of this. And yet, chapter 3... You remember all those, I mean, look, I make this joke all the time, but it's a serious. Do you remember all the birthday parties of chapter one? It's literally birthday parties in chapter one with a beloved family and lots of stuff and good food and drink. It is literally birthday parties. And now chapter three. Megan, will you read one through ten? After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren, let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Job, there's a lot of wordplay in here, so we'll go through several of the specifics he gets into. If, if the Lord has already so blessed you, or if he ever will so bless you, it is usually the case that the announcement of childbirth is the top five of joyful things in life. That announcement, the baby is here, is, I mean, there's, there's almost nothing like it. And Job takes that and looks at the result of his life, where his life is now, and he said, there should have been no joy in the announcement of my birth. Because... What has come of it? Disaster and tragedy and trial. He also plays with the language of Genesis 1 here. Remember that when God made the world, he said, let there be light. He, he made light to be into the world. And Job contrasts that with when Job came to be, the darkness that came into the world. Part of God's creation was light. Part of Job being created was darkness. Look at verse 4. Let that day be darkness. Look at the language of verse 5. Clouds and gloom and deep darkness and blackness. In verse 6, thick darkness. He's also playing here with the language of redemption. Most of us know this particular language in Hebrew because of the story of Ruth. You know, the idea of a kinsman redeemer, somebody who comes along and redeems uh, you. They're able to lay claim and save you out of a bad Situation, And he plays with that language here and asks for the darkness to redeem him from the light. This, this idea of light in Job's life is fake. His life is not light. And so he needs to be redeemed from that light by the darkness. He's not making a spiritual claim there like he wants to turn himself over to Satan. He's saying there should be no physical light in my life because there is no emotional light in my life. It is only darkness. 
He also does wordplay here at the end of verse six and seven. I'm going to be delicate with this, but it's wordplay about the night of his conception. And typically, that process involves joy and life. And he wants that to have been dark and joyless. He wishes it were barren. He wants there to have been no joyful cry, no happy noises in the process. It should all be dark and quiet and barren and sad. It's pretty intense. And so now, because he's lived this long, because none of that came true, and he actually was born, and he actually did come into existence, he didn't get any of those wishes, because cursing the past isn't really super effective. Uh, well, can't he just die now then? Justin, you have 20 to 26? Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. So there's more wordplay here. What did Satan say to God about Job at the beginning? Why did Satan say was the reason that Job was so faithful, so godly? Stuff. He used a very, yes, to all of that. And he used a very specific phrase. He said that God had put a hedge around him. That God had hedged him in with protection. And that's why Job was blessed. And that's why Job responded to God in faith. And now Job uses that language and says, I am hedged in. In what? In this miserable life. I am trapped in this miserable life. Because God has hedged me in. It's a real twist. Uh, he's, he's, uh, Ash wrote in the book we're reading, he's imprisoned in a life that he longs to leave but cannot. And this is really hard to hear. It's especially hard to hear in our context given the difficulties of the last several years. But there is a kind of suffering that makes you want to die. Physical and emotional pain can both get that bad, that you want to die. And that's what Job is expressing. He is tired of being alive. And as he reflects on his life, mostly backwards, but that backwards completely colors what he could see forward, he cannot think or see beyond the pain. He cannot see or imagine why there would ever be a day where there would not be this pain. And the way out of it is to die. Now, it's important to notice that Job does not threaten to take his own life. He does not take his own life. Job, a good and godly man, knows that his life does not belong to him. He cannot take it himself. He will get to a point where he says things that he shouldn't, but we're not at that point. I don't think we're even at that point at the end of chapter 3. I think Job is still allowed to say what he's saying, uh, theologically. But Job does some things that we should observe as unhelpful. His friends set him up for this by not providing comfort. And then the mind turns in on itself. Nothing good ever comes of that. We need outside to make us clean, we need outside to pull us out of the pit. It is not, if we were able to do that within ourselves, we wouldn't be in the pit. We'd have pulled ourselves out already. We need something outside to work on us. The outside thing is God. God works through means very often. That's friends and family and worship and prayer and all kinds of things. We need that external input to get us out of where we are. Everybody knows this who has a friend or a loved one who battles with depression. They 
They know what they're doing. They will tell you, I know I shouldn't do this. When I get in my dark place, I go into isolation. I turn it on my, I separate from all those external inputs that I need to get out of this. Well, that's what happened to Job, whether he wanted it or not. His friends sat there in silence for seven days. Not super helpful. And so Job turns it on himself. Job, I mentioned before, he only looks back. That is never helpful. It's, it's not, um, you can treat people as if they're able to just completely ignore the past and pretend it never happened. I'm not saying that. But all of Job's focus is on his past. Wish I'd never been born. I wish this hadn't happened. I wish, and, and that's not going to get you to where you need to be. Um, he's focused on lamenting about and cursing the very things that can never change, which is the past. The future can be different than you expect. The past is what happened. And so there is some aspect of forget it and drive on. <laughs> A friend of mine says, rip off the rearview mirror and, and, and hit the gas. You cannot look behind you the whole time. Now, some people can take that too far, like we're not even allowed to talk about the past to help us understand why we are the way we are or what things happen that are traumatic for us. I'm not saying that. But I am saying when our focus is all about the past, we can't see a future that's very different from the past. So what does Job's lament teach us about suffering? What, what do we need to think about suffering that we see here in Job that translates to our and our loved one's experience of suffering? I have a, a few of these that I want to draw attention to this morning. The first is that, I know you're going to say, say duh, but suffering is lonely. We talked about this a little bit last week. Though many experience suffering, even in this lament, Job in verse 20, the word, he uses the word we about the bitter soul. It's plural. Job gets that he's not the only one who ever suffers. He, he says the righteous are the ones hemmed in, trapped in this life by God. He, he's not saying I alone of all the people in the earth have ever suffered. Uh, lots of faithful people have and do suffer. Yet, even when people try to be with you, like Job's friends, and even when they do a better job than Job's friends of comforting you, they cannot be with, with you in your suffering. They cannot feel what you feel the way you feel it. It doesn't matter how much you try to describe it to them. It doesn't matter how sympathetic they are. It is not possible. Ash writes in his book, Every shared loss is experienced uniquely by each person. I read this part last week. When a child dies, the father alone knows what it is to be the father of this dead child. Only the mother enters the unique depths of loss as the mother of this son or daughter. However much they share, at the deepest level, they suffer alone. So again, I won't linger on this because we talked about it last week, but pain is not a contest. And that urge that we feel out of sympathy to let people know, I know how you feel. I've been through something before that was like this, is both true and false. <laughs> it's true that you know how suffering feels. It's true that you may have gone through something where a lot of the circumstances are similar or the same. It is not true that you know exactly how they feel. It is not true that you felt exactly this way before. And so we need to remember that suffering is lonely. And one of the things we need to acknowledge and address and help to bring comfort to is the loneliness of that suffering. If you tell people things they can't believe, you don't comfort them. So if I tell you, this seems so hard. I just, I hear your heart crying out. I, I'm here with you. That's believable. I, this must, I know exactly how this feels. I went through the same thing when my grandmother died. It's not believable. And so they're not comforted. So just think about what we say there so that we are um, comforting those that we intend to comfort. Second, lament is okay. It's valid. 
Job's lament in chapter three, I don't think is a theological problem. And I don't find many commentaries with which I agree that do think it's a theological problem. <clears throat> he is pouring out his heart. He says very dark things, but he's saying them because they're in his heart. <laughs> he doesn't curse God. He doesn't take his life into his own hands. He pours out utter despair. And I guess what, if you think this is a problem, what you would have preferred Job to do is to not say it out loud. Because it wasn't an option for him to not feel it in the heart. Again, go back a couple weeks. Telling people just don't feel that way. Not effective counseling. I've tried. Uh, it's, it's, it's not as effective as I'd hoped. The Psalms of Lament, which we've talked about, where the psalmist, where David and other psalmists pour out in anguish, where my enemies surround me. They win all the time, and we lose, and they mock me. This is my life. This is not good. That's a lament, and they have lots of laments in the Psalms. There's another one um, that I'd like to remind us of in Jeremiah, because I, it, it's probably not as familiar but remember the story of Jeremiah. Jeremiah obeys God's calling at a young age to become a prophet and to go into the Lord's service. And I think when you sign up for that sort of thing, you think good will come of this. I mean, maybe not like worldly fame and fortune, but people will know. The people who matter, godly Christian people, the Lord's people, will know that you're a big deal, doing a good thing. And that was not Jeremiah's experience. <laughs> Jeremiah's experience was rejection. Rejection from God's people, rejection from people who said they were his friends. And so, humanly speaking, rejection from God also. You claim you're doing this work for God. God doesn't seem to be rewarding it. Do you not see any connection there, Jeremiah? So, Jeremiah laments in a way that's very similar to Job's. Jake, will you read 20, 14 through 18? Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, a son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to seek toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Pretty intense, right? Uh, yeah, not, not very different from Job. Lament is valid. Um, anybody who tells you that your lament is not valid, let's start with the, the better answers. <laughs> um, they're your friend and they think you're lamenting too long and just haven't gotten out of this thing. And yeah, you did the look backwards lament. It's time to walk forward in faith. And that, that's a category. Um, there's also a category of they're trying to be comforting and they're just really bad at it. We can have grace for that. It's hard when you're the one suffering to have grace for somebody else's nonsense. But, um, but the third one is they're just wrong. They, they just think lament is never appropriate. Uh, Many of you have heard of the, the criticism, you know, Daphne and I growing up in uh, contemporary Christian music and sort of leading various ways in, in that universe, and not like we were leading the universe, but in the universe, we had leadership things. Um, and one of the things that when you grow up a little bit in that movement and you start to grow out of that movement that becomes clear to you is there is no room for lament. There's just no room for it. I could think about the worship services that I had been in week after week after week. And I'm a pretty freewheeling, happy-go-lucky teenager. And so those services are great for me. They're, they're rock and roll and birthday parties, and, and it's all good. And then you get a little older, and you have a friend whose wife miscarries. And you think, how does she feel in that service? And the answer is she feels like that service has no place for her at all. And if that goes on too long, she feels like this religion has no place for her at all, which you do see happen to people. Who think Christianity has no place for them and their problems. This is the religion of dealing with people's problems. And yet the way the church has conducted itself for decades suggests to people that don't come here if you have problems. Or come here and all your problems will go away. And if they don't, you should pretend that they did. <laughs> right? None of that's any good. Lament is 
valid. I also think lament is it's it's the people that are experience it with someone are uncomfortable there. Yeah. So they're trying to get them, you know, to move on because it is they that are uncomfortable hearing this. Yeah. We we uh, we want other people to get over their pain yeah. really quickly because yeah. it makes us uncomfortable yeah. to be around them. Yeah. I think that is a great point. Derek Thomas wrote, Lament is part of biblical testimony as to how we sometimes feel, whether we admit it or not. Lament is uncensored protest, the innermost soul being revealed. When we ache, something inside us just wants to lash out. And so you think about Job's lament, about Jeremiah's lament, it's not logic. It makes no sense at all. You can't undo the past. You can't bring darkness on the day of your birth. You can't make your parents unhappy in conception. You can't do these things. He just wants to lash out. And lament is the honest expression of how we feel. And so we should treat it that way. When we're responding to other people's lament, deal with the emotion, not the logic. This is not the time to come in as the precise theological expert and say, well, actually, because when somebody is saying, I wish I'd never been born, you're not dealing with a a, a rational, well, let me explain to you why that's not possible. You see, the flux capacitor is out of order. Don't, Don't worry about the details. Love your friend. Bring comfort. Uh, and that's one of the points we'll get to in a moment. I don't know uh, what number it is, but remember that comfort is sympathy plus wisdom. Never one or the other. We'll get to that in a little bit. But here, thinking about the lament, in lament, people need the sympathy. This chapter is written to be heart-wrenching. If you can read Job 3 and be unmoved, read it again. (laughs) And read it again and read it again until you're moved. Because the heart of sympathy, the godly heart of sympathy that we should have for one another requires that we be moved by what Job describes here. You're supposed to feel it. You're supposed to feel some. You can't feel all, but you're supposed to feel some of what others around you who are suffering feel. You're supposed to get a sense of where they are so that you can help them get to where they can be under the power and hope of the gospel. But you can't just generically throw that out there. You need to get a sense of where they're coming from. Where are they in this moment? Uh, So we'll come back to that, but don't forget the sympathy part. Three... Suffering is not distributed evenly. Read my writing at all. Um, Ash in the book tells the story of William Cowper. I'll remember that story, the 18th century hymn writer, the guy who wrote Over a Closer Walk with Thee. Some beautiful hymns from his pen. And um, Cowper is pretty well known, his story in, in Christian history through good biographies and his writings, that he was a Christian who dealt with depression and darkness prior to his conversion and was converted, saw the light of the gospel, and then dealt with darkness and depression for the rest of his life. It didn't go away. And he wrote Over a Closer Walk, he wrote Over a Closer Walk with God, um, which is a hymn where he laments, it's a hymn of lament, he laments the, the loss of joy soon after his conversion. You get converted and you have this enthusiasm and this joy for Christ and you feel this closeness to God and then like, life moves on. I don't want to make any analogies to any other relationships that at the beginning seem really, really, really exciting and then get pretty normal pretty quick. Um, but Cowper was really bummed out by this. 
And he thought he was doing, he must be doing something wrong because people whose minds are prone to darkness uh, always think that there's a, a, a reason, a something to blame within himself for why things feel the way they feel. So he assumed that if this initial zeal and passion for Christ that was there at the beginning has abated, it's because he's doing something wrong. It must be idolatry. So in that hymn, which is a theologically true hymn, and it's a good hymn to sing. I'm not arguing with, with the, the picture of the hymn. Um, Cowper says, show me my idols. Let me put my idols to death so that I can walk more closely with you so that I can feel that joy again. And it is certainly possible that when we don't feel close to the Lord, it's because we're not walking with the Lord. We're walking with idols, and we need those idols to be put to death. And if we'd walk with the Lord, we'd feel close with the Lord. That is absolutely a thing that happens. But idolatry is not the only reason that people don't feel close to the Lord at times. Sometimes you're just in dark nights of the soul. Sometimes there's not some personal sin on your part that is causing this feeling this experience and so ash says that has a congregation they looked at this hymn and they had to consider the possibility that as much as it applies to many believers in many circumstances cowper may have misdiagnosed his own condition here that is his despair might have had nothing to do with turning away from the worship of the true god real believers may go through despair and utter desperation. And that is that is really critical for us to get. We'll talk a lot more about this when we get to Job's friends. But some people are just given more to suffer. And I'm sorry. And I hope we can all be sorry for them and be sympathetic and make our efforts to comfort them. And be aware that, unlike Job's friends, um, we should be very cautious if we suggest that the suffering is their own fault or their own doing by sin. And unlike uh, the people Pam was describing who just want to make this awkwardness go away, it's not good to comfort people by saying, this too shall pass and there won't be any more suffering. And then think of how happy you'll be then, because what if they're not? What if in God's disposition of suffering, they got the long straw? Um, that hurts to say. It hurts to think about for people that we love, to think of ourselves if, if you feel as though you're in this category. But suffering is not distributed evenly across the Christian life where we're all going to get our 53 millimeters of suffering. And if you got 51 of yours in your first two years of existence, good news for you. It gets better from here. Didn't for Cowper. And it doesn't for some other people. Um, so we need to recognize the suffering is not divided evenly and we shouldn't treat it as if it is or distributed evenly. Um, I already mentioned just as kind of a three... Uh, or a four A and B, we we should be prepared for suffering. So we have an obligation. To be prepared for suffering. And I don't just mean our own suffering, because I think conceptually a lot of us are pretty good at that. I mean being prepared for suffering within our community. For suffering within our relationships, for suffering within the people that we love, not just when I encounter suffering in my own life, do I have the theological categories to remain faithful? That's important, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about when people we love encounter suffering, do we have the theological categories and the skill and the, the teachable humility to comfort them? To do the work that God calls the members of the body to do, living this life together in covenant community, can we be useful to our brothers and sisters in Christ by exercising the ability to comfort? Job complains that he has no rest. He wants to enter into God's rest, and he can't see the way there, so he wishes he had never been born. That's a factual question. How can I ever enter into God's rest? This is all misery. It's a factual question. So from another brother or sister in Christ, 
who is sympathetic with Job and laments with him and understands where he's coming from, you now have a factual basis on which to respond to Job, not about his feelings, not about his past, but about his future. That's comfort, sympathy plus wisdom. And as I said before, Christian worship has to be able to accommodate this. Job 3 is a great sermon to preach to contemporary Christianity because of how shallow it is and how happy-clappy it can be. Uh, Asher says it's the kind of Christianity that would have had Jesus singing a chorus at Lazarus's grave. Morning. Singing a chorus at Lazarus' grave. Like telling Jesus, you shouldn't feel that way. Stop feeling that way. Stop. Are you crying? There's no crying in Christian. Jesus, what are you doing? And that's what a lot of contemporary Christianity would want to do. Uh, if you look at Job chapter 3, so this is my chapter 3 team readers. We're going to chapter 3 now. Um, Nick, will you read 11 and 12? Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? Crystal 20 through 22. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul? We long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures. And let's actually keep going. Uh, Lauren, will you go to chapter 6, and Nick and Crystal go to chapter 7? Let's, I wanna, let's just... Take this through the book of Job for a minute. Uh, Lauren, 612. Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh of bronze? Flesh is or is my flesh bronze? Kate, you have seven one. Has not man a hard service on earth, and are not day are, and are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Nick, seven seventeen. What is man that you make so much of him, and that you set your heart on him? Crystal 7, 19 through 21. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone until I swallow my spit? If I say, what do I do to you, you watch over mankind. Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. What are, I could keep going. I have lists from 9, 10, 13, 20. I can keep going. What do all those verses have in common? Don't overcomplicate it. What punctuation mark do they end They're all questions. They're all questions. <clears throat> Look at how many questions Job asks. And just as many people who think you can't ask these questions, you shouldn't ask these questions of God. These questions should not be. Job is allowed to ask. He will get to a point where his accusations in the questions reveal something that needs to be corrected in his heart. But the questions can be asked, and the people of God, the brothers and sisters that God has given us in Christ, should have some answers. We should start with sympathy, but if what someone is doing in their lament, and it's what we're all doing in our lament, we're asking questions. We're complaining. That's okay. And our complaints give way to questions. Why or how or what? Or, they give way to questions. And for us to be prepared for suffering, for Christian worship to accommodate the sufferer, we have to have sympathy and we have to have answers to the questions. <laughs> there are answers to the questions. Um, Many at, let's take a, just a moment rabbit trail on, is it good to ask this many questions for these types of questions? Derek Thomas points out that pain brings about the fiercest temptations. So one of the things we need to ask is, how often are we asking these questions? Um, how bad does the bad have to be for us to enter into lament? Because it may be the case that if every time something doesn't go our way, every time we don't get what we want, we consider that suffering and we have all these questions for God and we go into this lament. That's a heart problem that can be dealt with as a separate heart problem. It's not really suffering. And it is true that faith's 
greatest test, this is Derek Thomas' line, faith's greatest test is to trust God in the dark. So there will be an element of this, certain questions that we will get to where God will say, you, you can't know. You, you can't understand why this is good. If I gave you the answer to the question, the information you were looking for, it would not help you. It would not get you to the understanding you think you would have. Derek Thomas uses the example of the cross. If, if Jesus explains the cross to his disciples beforehand, uh, then they say, oh, well, obviously, yeah, we get it. This is going to be good. It's all good. Yep, I like this plan. This is going to work. No! They say this is insane. They rebuke Jesus. Stop talking about this death thing. Peter pulls out a sword and is chopping off ears. They got the answers to the questions. And they hated them and said, this is no good. The same would happen with Job. Ash, in his book, uses the example of, um, uh, who's the person who gets paralyzed in the diving accident? Joni Erickson Todd. Yeah. And, and so she comes to the point in her growth and maturity where she says, I realize if the Lord had given me the answers, Scripture tells me I wouldn't understand them. It wouldn't do me any good. What I need here is to trust the Lord, not to have my intellectual curiosity satisfied. And so all these things are held in tension as we look to comfort people. So there's not a paint-by-numbers, one-size-fits-all of does this person need to be comforted or do they need a kick in the pants? How much sympathy is enough sympathy before you get to answering the questions? That's what godly wisdom and the leading of the Holy Spirit is for. We comfort by faith and we comfort by the power of the Spirit. But we can't just do one and not the other. We can't do sympathy without answers to questions, and we can't do answers to questions without sympathy. We can't rebuke people for asking any questions, but some questions, the answer for people is going to be, you couldn't handle that if God told you. Let me give you some examples from Scripture where people think they can handle God's answers. When shall we come into our kingdom? Oh, you shouldn't ask that. You're not going to like this answer. There is no your kingdom. Bad news. Uh, that's that's what happens here, and that's what we need to be thoughtful about. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata uses the, the illustration of if God had answered all of her questions and her laments, she said it would have been like pouring a million gallon of truth into a one-ounce container. It just can't hold it. Her mind cannot hold the answers that she was asking God to give, and God knew that, and so he didn't give it. And when we're asking those questions and somebody does have so-called answers for them, they all always tell lies about God. This is how most heresies get started. Most heresies get started by people thinking they figured out the answer to the question that God tells us in Scripture he is not going to answer for us. We have a couple thousand years of church history now of seeing how this can happen. Or even go back to the garden. Did God not say that that's how this works. God doesn't give us a piece of information. Some snake comes along and says, I got that information you were looking for, and it's bad. It leads to a bad place. Uh, so all of this is, is of a kind here. Uh, Job is about the one answer. The book of Job is going to be about a lot of things, but ultimately Job is about the one answer. And it's not just the sufferer who needs to get this through their thick skulls. I would say even before that, it's the comforters, those of us who would presume to comfort brothers and sisters in their distress better get this one answer in their heads, which is that God will be glorified. No matter what, God will be glorified. And if you want your soul and your mind to be at peace, accept that. <laughs> because so much of our existential crisis is rebelling against that. It's telling God how he will be glorified or that he shouldn't be glorified that way or that he'd be more glorified if he did this. This other, I love God and have a wonderful plan for his life. And he would just do the things I tell him. God would be much happier. Right? We've got to put that to death. So Paul has a great answer here. Um, Daphne, can you turn to Romans 11? Yes. Remember, what Satan wanted 
from our suffering is the same thing he wanted from Job's suffering, which is for it to be the cause of believing lies about lies about God and then cursing God and dying. <laughs> That's Satan's goal in all of this. Don't forget that. He wants Job to believe lies, to curse God, and to end his story there. That's the point from Satan's perspective of suffering. Satan doesn't see, uh, doesn't care to see, and cannot see what God is actually doing with suffering. So he thinks suffering is just great because it can work out these purposes. But Paul in Romans 11, 33 through 36 has the answer. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Quoted Derek Thomas a lot today. Let me do it one more time. Christianity is an invitation to trust God's love at all times. Instead of answering all our questions, it introduces us to the God in whom the answer to all those questions lies. That's what Christianity is. It is not an invitation to have a, a perfectly buttoned up intellectual worldview, though it offers that. But the reason it offers that is not because that is the aim. It's because a relationship with the God in whom all those answers can be found is the aim. The mental peace of mind, the logical consistency in what we believe and how we live, those are the fruits of the faith. But you can't put those things primary. As if, you know what, if I just have a really logically consistent religion, then I'm ready for life and eternity. Not if that logically consistent religion isn't born out of abiding in the true line, the fruit of faith. We're supposed to look to Christ in the darkness. And we're supposed to know, and even those of you who are suffering, we're supposed to be comforted. This is a fact that will change our feelings. When we're in the darkness, we're supposed to know, factual knowledge, that he endured the darkness too. That we do not serve a Savior who has no experience of suffering but who in every way, like us, you see where I'm going there, <laughs> we serve that Savior. Praise God, it's a risen Savior. But he had to rise from death. He had to rise from the grave. He had to rise from the humiliation of the incarnation. <laughs> he, he was a man of sorrow. And so when we feel the weight of our suffering, which is sorrow, we should remember and have our emotions changed by the fact that he suffered too on the way to glory. And he said to us, where I go, you will go also. Questions about Job 3. It's the worst, except the best. <laughs> Nick? You, uh, I guess the, the questions, and you kind of phrase it as, is it okay or is it wrong to question like that? And I know the frequency, like everything that happens. It depends. My always good answers are, it depends. <laughs> but in this this case, I don't know, is Job sinning against God? Is no, it, I don't think so. Yeah. It's, a, it's a subjective assessment. The Bible doesn't 100% concretely tell us. I think it gives us lots of good clues that even if he were, that's not supposed to be our focus at all because God is focused on the goodness of Job being completely disconnected from Job's experience and the greatness of Job. It seems really hard not to have those questions in your mind if you're suffering like that. That's right. Really, no, I can't. And those questions can easily lead us into sin. And we will see that they lead Job to some very problematic places. But the question is, do the questions themselves represent sin? And I don't think the book tells us that the answer to that is yes. Andrew? Um, in that last... Uh... Derek Thomas quote, it was helpful to hear I, just the word love in there, because the, the the disposition is to think that God like hates you. Yeah, when you're suffering, you don't have any problem trusting God's power. Trusting God's love is the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what we're called to do, is to trust his love. The quote from several weeks ago, that the one who caused these afflictions loves us and is using these afflictions as an exercise of his love to mold us into what he desires us to be. 
that is a tremendous exercise in trust. And the more Job says, how is that possible? We start getting to, look, if I told you that I'm going to become incarnate in a Jewish carpenter and have him persecuted and put to death on a cross, and that's how I'm going to show my love for my people, would you have believed me? Nope. Justin? I want to be a good company. <laughs> yeah. How do we do it imperfectly, but still do it? You know, don't uh, don't abstain from doing that, you know? Where it practically begins is with asking, is, is by waiting to talk. So I'll, I'll give Paul's practical steps. <laughs> Wait to talk, period. Job's friend's initial silence was not wrong. Wait to speak. See if the other person will volunteer the substance of their pain. When you do speak, it should be questions. You should be learning. How do they feel? And why specifically do they feel that way? You cannot be listening to them if you are at the same time formulating your answer and your response to them. You've got to shut your mind's processing of all of this aside. Don't feel rushed. If I've got time to wait for them to speak, and I've got time to ask questions, then I also have time to take their answers and process them when they're done speaking so that I actually heard them. I have a good friend, Phil, from Old Church. I was thinking of him because he sent me a very kind happy birthday email. And he used to, at business meetings, he would keep this completely straight face when you're in one of those meetings with somebody who interrupts you all the time. And eventually they would... They would stop and say, is there a problem? And he would say, oh, no, no, no. You keep interrupting me, and I'll speak when you're done. <laughs> so, but we get that way. I, I can help you solve this. Oh, I know the answer. Oh, I thought of a thing to say, so I better say it now before I forget it. Bring a pen. Write it down. Uh, yeah, that to me would be the biggest practical, is listen first, ask questions, process next, then if you feel led by the Spirit that you have an understanding of the situation and some biblical wisdom, not your wisdom, biblical wisdom, not your wisdom, biblical <laughs> wisdom, to apply, then speak into their life. What are, do you have some examples of the kind of questions you ask? Have you felt this way before? Uh, what, what hurts the most? What's the thought you can't get out of your mind? What does it make you afraid for for the future? Have you felt this way before? I start with ones like that. Yeah, that's hard. That's tough. It's hard when you think of when you know what's causing. They just lost somebody. Right. You already know what. Why do you feel so sad? Uh, I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> yeah. No. No. If, if you know, you don't need to start with why do you feel sad. What hurts the worst? What are you afraid of? Just yeah. What one quick question on like the, the thoughts piece? It's a it's a it's a delicate line and it's hard to differentiate but some thoughts are just um, intrusive and it's not the person who wants to think them now I don't want to like dismiss no. responsibility it's a great follow-up question yeah. do you feel like that's a fleeting thought or has that sunk really deep don't put somebody on trial when they express some just fleeting that they know I don't really believe that yeah. it's the false thought in my head at this moment they should be allowed to say those too but ask them is that what you is that what you believe to be true, or is that what you feel in the moment? I don't know. It just hurts bad. That tells me. If they say, no, that's who God is, don't answer now. Make yourself a note. Okay, we're going to come back to this. Who is God? <laughs> All right, we are way late. Thank you. <laughs>